So welcome to System Change Made Simple. You might have heard at various climate rallies and so on, the slogan, System Change, Not Climate Change. This podcast series aims to look into that slogan and to talk about how we might create system change and also to discuss why systems of inequality, exploitation and oppression are so common like the racist system, the patriarchal system, the capitalist system and so on. And what's the history of this cross-culturally? I'm a sociologist and also an environmentalist. So here we go. Get yourself a cup of tea or something like that and enjoy the podcast. So as you probably realise, what I've been arguing is that sociologists generally believe that there's no urge to kill, no basic drive in human beings to compete aggressively to the point of doing physical harm to other people. On the other hand, I think what's implied by the sociological discussions is that people have the capacity to use aggression. It's innate to that extent that it's a tool that is used to serve other basic drives. And clearly, one of the problems with that kind of sociological analysis is that there seems to be an excessive amount of aggression if we look at world history. That's not that readily explained in terms of people using aggression to satisfy other basic drives. Instead, we find quite a lot of aggression which seems to be pursued pretty much for its own sake. I mean, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that, but there's certainly some. And I think that's why evolutionary psychologists have decided that there's an urge to kill, because in a way that explains excessive aggression that goes beyond the necessity to use aggression to meet other needs. Okay, so this particular podcast is on the evolutionary psych explanation of this, and I explain why I think that's really mistaken or why their account of it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then in the next and final podcast on this topic, I'm going to look at more of the feminist psychoanalytic explanation of excessive aggression, which I think is actually the right one. But anyway, it's about the evolutionary psychology point of view on aggression and competitiveness generally, and the sociological view that I talked about. And really, it's about the arguments that evolutionary psychologists use to attack the sociological view. What I said was that sociologists tend to believe that aggression is a tool of human nature rather than a basic desire, so that there's no basic desire to harm people and people don't naturally enjoy and take pleasure out of of harming other people. But on the other hand, when your needs, wants are frustrated by someone else's actions, it's typical that you will be able to make use of aggression to try and get what you want. Okay. Uh, So the evolutionary psychology view is that competition is a natural desire and so on, that evolution is responsible for creating this aggressive drive. The survival of the fittest implies that evolution will end up by creating this aggressive drive. And once we understand how evolution works, we won't find any surprise that there's aggressive behaviour and that there's so much aggression in human societies. And you could call this talk lobster salad in honour of Jordan Peterson, a recent and extremely popular social psychologist. One of his great examples is a lobster in a cave underwater, you know, has to defend their turf against other possible lobster attacks. And so they become extremely aggressive. And he recommends this as a strategy for people to um, 
you know, I mean, you'd have to say the book's mostly written to men, but for men to sort of stand up for themselves and fight for themselves. And it's actually part of their evolutionary inheritance to be able to do this. And otherwise, you know, they never would have arrived on the planet if they hadn't developed these options through evolution. And like, I suppose, I mean, one thing I would say about that initially is I'm absolutely in favour of people standing up for themselves and, and totally agree with it. Evolution fits us to do that. And it's not surprising that we have a desire to look after our own interests and so on. But what I find about, in practice, I think that Jordan Peterson is talking to a lot of people, men who actually don't have any problem standing up for themselves. And they exist in a state of perpetual grumpiness, rushing around to find out, oh, how can I stand up for myself more? You know, like the person who's tailgating you in their car as you're driving along at 55 instead of 60 because it's raining or something. Or the person who almost runs over your dog because they have to ride their bike at, you know, 30 k's in a park or whatever. I mean, excuse me. These people don't need to be told how to stand up for themselves. And what I'd say about the way this is received by such people is that it ends up that they exercise their aggressive feelings against people who are the wrong targets, you know, like people who don't have much power, actually. And, you know, like the person walking their dog or someone like that who's not doing them any harm at all. And they could actually... Uh, do better by just letting these people go about their business. I mean, in other words, that often this aggression is directed against people that are not actually the right targets. And we could look at this more broadly in terms of the way refugees and Aborigines become the target of this kind of macro aggression when really these are people are struggling to live. The other thing I'd say about it is that what it's saying to, to these people and like this book and were carried away by this way of looking at things is that it closes off benefits of actually enjoying looking after other people that, that I mean it may be a part of human nature to want what you want and you know to stand up for yourself and so on and yeah that's all very true but it's also a part of human nature to enjoy looking after other people to enjoy the pleasure of looking after other people and I don't just mean in terms of the reciprocal affection that you get back by doing that or more material paybacks but I mean the actual act of caring for other people is a pleasure in itself and that these kind of ways of looking at this situation, emphasizing the necessity for aggressive behavior actually tend to lead to a mindset which ignores that and passes over that to great detriment to the people who are caught up in this way of thinking about things. Okay, so let me now be a bit more kind of fair in a way and less ad hominem and talk more about the arguments that people like this use. Okay, so what they'd say is that Competitive aggression is necessary because of the necessity of survival of the fittest. In other words, in order to survive in an environmental, in a competitive environment, which is the way the planet is, if you like, then you need to be able to be competitive and aggressive. So that's the first thing they say, and evolution favours that. That's their first argument, right? Their second argument is that the sociological position, which I outlined last talk, which is that aggression is just a tool it's not actually distinct. There's no difference really between, between that theory and their theory. So I'll come back to that. And then the third thing that they do is they provide evidence from ape societies to try and get a sort of grip on what human nature is like and say, you know, like we can't be all that different to chimpanzees and even orangutans and baboons and so on to, to whom we're fairly closely related in terms of our DNA and so on. So I'm going to go through all these three points. Okay, survival of the fittest. 
According to evolutionary psychologists, aggression is a part of human nature. To survive and pass on their genes, members of a species need to be competitive. You know, and, and they'll say things like, there are scarce resources of food, nests, sites, mates, and so on. And consequently, you know, in order, in order to grab these scarce resources, people have to be aggressive and prepared to fight other people and so on. <clears throat> and consequently, and I'm using the words of tiger and fox here, the human nature includes the pursuit of unfair shares. In other words, it's part of human nature to try and get more for yourself than other people are getting and not to share things out fairly. Okay, so here's my reply to that argument. First of all, it makes sense to say that there's evolutionary advantage in being able to compete when your interests are threatened. Yeah, I can see that. But when your interests are not threatened, it, it makes more evolutionary sense to cooperate. So it's like the idea that, that evolution would favour aggression as a sort of drive, you know, I can't live well unless I'm enjoying some aggressive behaviour doesn't make any sense because in situations where it's actually more in evolutionary advantage to cooperate, then this drive just gets in the way. Excuse me, this is a big problem then. If you're always aggressive and you have a desire to do harm to other people that's generalized. And in fact, you know, nobody really thinks like that either. Theoretically, they don't take that into account. Social animals prosper by helping others. I mean, one of the classic examples that I read was Chimpanzees, when they arrive at a source of food, you know, like a big tree, which is full of fruit and so on. The chimpanzees who arrive there first don't go, I want all of this fruit for myself. I'm not letting anyone else know about it. No, they, they scream and shout and encourage other chimpanzees to arrive and enjoy the feast. Now, that's altruistic, cooperative behaviour. And it makes sense for chimpanzees in the sense of surviving well and so on. If we want to be, you know, coldly rationalistic about this and we're looking for a knockdown against this perspective, this evolutionary psych perspective, the best thing is to look up Prisoner's Dilemma Games and Robert Axelrod's Evolution of Cooperation. He wrote an article first and then a book. Basically, the Prisoner's Dilemma sets up a situation. Oh, it's so hard to explain. I don't know that I want to be bothered with all of that. But basically, it sets up a situation where... In an individual case, you've got a motive for being nasty because you can't be sure that the other person's going to be cooperative. And if they're nasty, it's better to be nasty than to be cooperative. It's only if and you don't know if they're going to be cooperative or not, that's a problem. So in which case, it's better to be nasty in advance. Now, what Robert Axelrod did was he set this game up, this prisoner's dilemma game up, in a situation where the one player would be playing against the same player through a whole, like 200 games, right? And then worked out what strategy would actually lead to the best outcome. The best strategy is what's called the tit-for-tat strategy. In the tit-for-tat strategy, on the first move, cooperate, be unselfish. Like, in a, okay, when you first meet this person, you don't know what they're going to do. The best thing to do at that point is to be cooperative. You know, you do the cooperative altruistic thing, and hope that they'll reciprocate. On every following move, if they're nasty to nasty back, if they're nice to you, don't try tricking them and be nasty back, you'll be cooperative back. And so at any point in the game, when they suddenly start to cooperate, you cooperate back straight away. You don't punish them for being nasty in the past, you cooperate instantly. You don't aim to do better than them, you, you only aim to maximise the advantages through cooperation. 
So you're unselfish if the other player's unselfish and selfish if they've behaved selfishly. If they return to being unselfish, then you reciprocate in kind. Okay, so that's called the tit for tat strategy. And that's a strategy that actually works better rather than being nasty. So in other words, from the point of view of survival of the fittest, it actually makes sense that people will have been programmed by evolution to be cooperative. And we, we know they're cooperative. I mean, the, the empirical reality is that not just the human species, but other species are, are cooperative and altruistic in their behavior with other members of their own species who are not related to them as kin, in other words, you know, like, okay, well, I won't go why that's relevant, but anyway. <clears throat> we know that they are, but the problem is to explain why in an evolutionary sense, in a situation where every other person is being programmed by evolution to be selfish, why the unselfish person actually has an advantage by being cooperative. This Prisoner's Dilemma game set up by Robert Axelrod shows why that is the case. And basically, people like Jordan Peterson basically just haven't done their homework. They just don't know the literature properly. All right, let me say one last thing. The bonobos are a species of ape, a kind of chimpanzee, really. And I'll probably talk about them a bit more later. But like, let's just say that in terms of aggression, very, very different to, to other ape species in that they're gender egalitarian. You know, the, the male and female chimpanzees have, bonobos have equal authority. There's no bad behavior by male chimpanzees in relationship to females or infants like rape or battering or whatever, which takes place in, in the other chimpanzee species. They respond to a stranger entering their territory with affection. In fact, the females go up and start having sex with them while the males look on not the least bit jealous, and then, then join in later. I mean, this is bizarre behaviour, you'd have to say, but it's, it's interesting. And what I would be saying about that is that, the real, I mean, whatever else you want to say about it, you could say heaps about it, and I probably may come back to it, but the fact is that the bonobos have survived like this for millions of years. It's like they separated from the chimpanzee species a million years ago, anyway. So they've survived quite well without behaving in aggressive, competitive ways and without having masculine aggression, demonic males and so on. Okay, let me move on to the second argument. The second argument is that there's no real difference between the sociological view and the urge to kill theory. Sociologists say we're only aggressive when we are frustrated by the actions of another person. Yet these situations take place all the time and are inevitable. So someone says to, that the idea that we could all be peaceful if we didn't have causes to go to war is a ridiculous theory, idea because we always have causes to go to war. So, you know, like, excuse me, conflicts are inevitable in human society and so on. So why does it make any difference? This is an application of the scientific principle of Occam's razor, like choose the simplest theory to explain what's happening, right? So then they say, so aggression must be part of human nature. This is the urge to kill theory. And like I point out in more length in, in the last talk, these theories are actually quite different. In the sociological view, aggression can be defused by dealing with the problem in another way. In other words, when there's a conflict between people, one response is to use physical aggression or the threat of aggression to get your own way. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that your need that's being frustrated can be satisfied in some other way. Either they decide to 
negotiate some sort of solution or something else happens which intervenes, which means that the opposition is no longer a problem for you. That's a crucial difference between the urge to kill theory and the sociological theory of aggression. It's fascinating, actually. They just pretend not to notice this difference. All right, the last thing that they talk about is the evidence of other ape species. So what they're saying is like, because human beings are natural, you know, creatures of the planet, and yeah, you can doubt that. And we can look around then to see what other species are similar to us, especially in terms of DNA, to get an idea of what the nature of humans might be like. And, you know, this is certainly not a stupid idea. And so if we look at the other ape species, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, baboons, and so on, we can find a lot of those aggressive, competitive, and especially male aggression, demonic males and so on, so I am talking about it, is in those other ape species. Their social behaviour includes things like battering, you know, like in other words, a young male who wants to establish himself in a chimpanzee group will pull off a branch and start bashing everybody with that, especially the women, but other males and so on, and, and attain dominance through that. There's child killing, especially in gorillas, you know, like, I won't go into that, it's too, too awful. Dominance hierarchies maintained by force, you know, by the threat of the bashing and so on. Rape, especially orangutans. Hostile attacks on strangers like chimpanzees and so on. So these are certainly sorts of behaviours that occur in human societies. And so what evolutionary psychologists say is, well, okay, let's look at chimpanzees as a bit classic example very similar to us in terms of DNA and like, duh, 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 you know, why, you know, like these behaviors occur in chimpanzees and, and clearly they can't be the result of socialization in chimpanzees because we're looking at a range of different chimpanzee societies that haven't influenced each other. And we're looking at chimpanzees in zoos and I don't know, you know, like it's not socialization here. So this must be part of the nature of chimpanzees. So why not, when we look at these sort of similar behaviors in humans, why not the nature of humans? And I think this is an, a very persuasive argument. And I, I suggest a number of different responses. So the first thing is this, the best evidence for human nature is what we actually do as humans, right? And my argument is that sociologists, and I'll talk about this in the talk next time, have a, a really good explanation of why a lot of these behaviors occur in human societies. And in some ways, what they're talking about is not that different. You could explain a lot of the behavior in ape societies, aggressive behavior in a similar way. In a sense, there are similar social patterns which lead to aggressive behavior in ape and human societies. And I'll talk about that. So, you know, like ultimately at the end of the day, anthropologists and historians are the ones who we should be listening to when we're talking about human nature, not people studying chimpanzees. Duh, you know. Okay, the second thing is this, that far from the behaviour of ape species being like laid down by a genetic program, you know, and always the same, da, 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 is actually quite different. And there are two interesting examples. One is the chimpanzees that Jane Goodall was studying. They're famous for having their aggressive behaviour and attacking uh, chimpanzees who wandered into their area from another troop and, and so on and so forth. The, the, the warlike behaviour of these chimpanzees is like, ugh. And what people have suddenly realised about this study is that Jane Goodall didn't notice any of this kind of aggressive behaviour until something different happened. 
And you know what happened? She put up a cage with bananas in it. She would let the chimps have bananas at particular times of the day. So suddenly, in other words, there's the plasticity of this behavior. This aggressive behavior was not uniform, always, all the time, driven by urges that are innate and manifest as a desire to enjoy the pleasures of bashing other people up. No, they're actually responding to a situation where desires were being frustrated and they were trying to fend off the chimps who might also be trying to get the bananas. Okay, and the second example is there was a tribe of baboons who used to forage on a dump and the tribe caught tuberculosis and the key males in the tribe all dropped dead, right? Now, what happened in that situation was that suddenly the female baboons took power. There was much more of this affiliative nicey-nicey behaviour than there'd ever been when the male leader were leading the troop. And the younger males were not being bashed up by the superior males in the troop. And, and, and the whole ball game changed. What that suggests, if we apply those lessons to human society, what that suggests is that we could probably change human behaviour quite drastically from what it's been and what our awful history reveals by changing the sort of social structures in which aggression takes place. All right, the third thing is, and this is like the elephant in the room, if you like, the bonobos are as closely related to us as the chimpanzees are. We split from the chimpanzee bonobo line four million years ago, right? Up until that, there were no humans on the planet, right? You know, like at that point, our ancestors, Australopithecus and whatever, started to become different from the chimpanzee line, right? At that point in time, there was no distinction between chimps and bonobos. What happened one million years ago is that the chimps and bonobo line split. So it may well be that the bonobos are actually closer to us genetically than the chimpanzees. Now, I've talked to you a bit about what the bonobos do, and I really recommend you go and find out more about them. They're just amazing. Um, and, what, and what you can say about the bonobos is that their social strategy, as it were, is very similar to the social strategy recommended by second wave feminism. In other words, alliances of women which act to prevent men from taking power in society, which dominate the care of young boys and prevent them from being recruited into patriarchy. That is exactly the strategy of the bonobos and it's a strategy that's recommended by second wave feminism. And the fact is the bonobos suggest to us that this strategy can actually work. And that's what I'll be looking at in the next podcast. What are the social structures that cause aggressive competitive behavior, especially where men are concerned, to be so common in human societies? And, and to come up with a different explanation of that from, from the wrong explanations offered by evolutionary psychology. So thanks for listening.